Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, before I jump into the scripture itself, I want to tell you a little bit about myself because I know you know me as your worship pastor for the last six years, but you probably don't know a whole lot about my story. So I'll, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about my Jesus story, if that's okay, uh, because it actually has some bearing on this topic of judgment that I want to approach with you today. So um, I became a Christian when I was 16 years old. I grew up in what I would call a nominally Christian household. Uh, my mom made us go to church every single Sunday. I have amazing parents and siblings. Uh, shout out to mom and dad. I love you guys. Um, but I wouldn't say that I grew up in a Christian capital C home in the sense that we probably understand it. We didn't talk about being born again. We didn't talk about having a living relationship with Jesus. It was just all about you know, going to church. At least that was my perception of it as a kid. And because of that, church was so boring. It was so boring. It felt like an adult social club that kids got dragged along to. And we just sat in the lobby waiting for our parents to be quiet so we'd just go home and eat. That's what church was to me uh, growing up. And I felt, like, I felt like if God was real, he was pretty distant. Um, and that was it. And so as I got older, like into my early teen years, I think 12 or 13 actually, uh, I really, I just decided I didn't believe in God anymore. He seemed pretty irrelevant to me. I was learning a little bit about science, and, and that seemed like more true. And uh, so my parents actually stopped making me go to church. And they just let me stay home. And at 16, so a few years passed, I was an atheist, just a young teenage atheist. And at 16, I met this girl. And she had a real relationship with Jesus. And I thought that was ridiculous. <laughs> Just totally absurd. Like, you know he's dead, right? How do you have a relationship with this guy? But she did. And I, it was intriguing. I, I, I really became intrigued by it. And so we dated for a while, and she invited me to summer camp one summer, camp at Camp Wildwood. Actually, it's a Baptist camp in Bucktooth, New Brunswick, a place that I love and cherish. I worked there for many years myself. Uh, so she invited me there with her and a bunch of our friends, and I thought I would just go and have fun at camp. Um, but here's what actually happened at camp. God completely changed me and the trajectory of my life. 16-year-old atheist Jay. He just grabbed a hold of my heart and changed it just like that. In five days, I wasn't looking for him. He found me. It was amazing. And I'm sure my parents thought it was just a phase. But it's been a 30-year phase, y'all. <laughs> I've been following Jesus now for 30 years, half of that time in vocational ministry. So I'm so thankful for the Lord for doing that. I was completely unprepared for how he would meet me during that week. Um, and I was also completely unprepared for how my new faith would be challenged almost as soon as I got home. Like, the Holy Spirit was already at work in me. I felt different. I was different. And I began to realize that a lot of uh, the old J didn't really work with the new J. The Jesus J, the Holy Spirit J. It did not work. It's kind of like, like if some of you have 
experienced like a sudden and radical conversion, you go back into your old life and it feels like you lost a bunch of weight and you're still trying to walk around in the same jeans. That's a little bit what it feels like. You got no belt. This doesn't feel right. It's not working. I couldn't watch the same stuff. I couldn't listen to the same stuff. I couldn't do the same stuff. Some of it just didn't feel right anymore. And kind of unfortunately, uh, many of my new Christian friends were also pretty eager to point out just which parts of the old Jay had to go. Like I knew I had to change some things about myself. I actually wanted to change some things about myself. That was the Holy Spirit at work in me. Like I knew I probably couldn't listen to this band that I like called Two Life Crew. If you don't know who they were, don't Google them. Don't do that. They were a, a hardcore rap group back in the 90s. They're actually probably pretty tame by today's standards, but back then they were pretty raunchy. I, I really felt conviction that I probably shouldn't listen to them anymore. But I didn't know that I couldn't listen to Led Zeppelin anymore or like the Beatles or like the Rolling Stones. All my friends told me, oh, you can't listen to that rock music, Jay. This was shortly after there was this uh, documentary that came out in the 80s. This is, this is the wonderful poster right here. I don't know if you can see what's going on here. Uh, this came out a couple of years before I gave my life to Jesus. And so it was making the rounds around camp and youth groups. And basically, you can see the title, Hell's Bells, The Dangers of Rock and Roll. And it really spoke strong condemnation over the music that I loved. And a lot of it I still love today. Like some of it is not good to listen to, but some of it is just good. It's just good music. I still like Led Zeppelin, y'all. Is that okay? Is that okay in church that I like Led Zeppelin? All right. Uh, yeah, so I kind of walked home from that camp into my old life, into my new Christian friends, and smack dab into the middle of the number one reason why most non-Christians say they don't want anything to do with Christianity. Do y'all know what that is? Christians are so judgmental. We're judgy. I don't want anything to do with that, right? This is the reputation that we have. And I'm sure, like I'm 100% sure if you've been a Christian or been in a church for any length of time, you felt judged too. Can I get a witness? Come on. You've been judged for how you dressed. You've been judged for how you didn't dress, right? You've been judged for what you said. You've been judged for what you didn't say. You've been judged for who you spend your time with. You've been judged for how you spend that time. You've been judged for where you spend that time. You've been judged for what you watch. You've been judged for what you eat. You've been judged for what your kids watch. You've been judged for what your kids eat. Parents? And in one of life's great ironies, you've also been judged for being too judgmental. Come on, Ed Ockley, this guy knows. Is anyone else such an NFL fan that they know the name of a ref in the NFL? This is Ed Hockley. <laughs> judge not, lest you be judged, makes you guilty of judging someone for judging. <laughs> Here's the thing, guys. Whether you realize it or not, you have probably also done some judging yourselves. I bet most of us here today wouldn't consider ourselves to be judgmental people. It doesn't have a nice ring to it. Like, it's not something we like to think about ourselves. I don't think I'm judgmental. But I know that I've had conversations with people from which they've walked away feeling judged. One of my responsibilities as a pastor, one of my more difficult responsibilities, is to 
from time to time, guide people away from destructive behavior. So I have to have difficult conversations. And in those conversations, I sometimes have to call out sin that that person might not think is a sin. And when that happens, they walk away feeling judged and they label me as judgmental. And I think this is part of the real challenge for us, church. It's that I think although a lot of our reputation as judgy people is rooted in brokenness and sinfulness and insecurity and fear and our own stuff, I think just as much, if not more, is rooted in this real, holy, God-honoring desire for people to know the truth, like the capital T truth, because ultimately people will never understand their need for a savior if they don't understand what they need saving from. They just won't. Jesus said in, in John 8, 31, 32, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will, say it with me, set you free. We want people to walk in freedom because we've experienced freedom. It's a good thing. It's a God thing. But in order for that to happen, they must know the truth. Now, the truth is a person. His name is Jesus. And the truth are principles. They are his teachings and his word. So what do we do with this troublesome reputation, church? This judgy reputation. How can we know when that's coming from this place of brokenness and sinfulness? And how can we know when it's coming from that place of sincerity and love that wants people to walk in freedom? Let's look quickly at our passage uh, one more time. Matthew 7, 1 to 5. It says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The question I want to ask you about this passage is, was Jesus really telling us never to judge when he says judge not? I actually don't think he was. And I, it's pretty dangerous to disagree with Jesus, but I don't think I'm actually disagreeing with him. And I hope to prove that to you as well. It's actually impossible to walk through life without judging without forming judge, judgments and opinions. Without judgment, there is chaos. Everyone does what they think is best in their own eyes. Can I get an amen? That's happening right in front of us. And if you think it's a modern-day problem only, I encourage you to read the book of Judges. Here, I can't get into all the details of Judges, but here's, here's a quick synopsis of Judges. Um, every time the Lord raised up a judge over Israel... They return to the Lord. They experience salvation and victory over their enemies. And every time that judge died, they went right back to their corruption and sinfulness. Every single time, over and over and over again. So God clearly doesn't want us to give up on judgment altogether. What are we then to do with this passage? I think actually Jesus himself answers this for us in another gospel, in another verse, in John chapter 7, verse 24. It's a very simple verse, and it reads like this. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. 
Stop judging by mere appearances. Instead, judge correctly. If my message had a title today, that would be it. Instead, judge correctly. Instead of what? Instead of all the other ways that we could judge, we are to judge correctly. But Jesus knew it wasn't easy. This is not easy. There are so many ways that we can make incorrect judgments over people, which I think is why he gives us this stern warning in Matthew 7. Judge not or you will be judged. This is hyperbole for effect. It's an exaggeration to make a point. It's kind of like earlier in the sermon. Do you remember the verse where he says that if your arm causes you to sin, cut it off, right? Or if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. I don't think he really wanted his followers to self-amputate or to maim themselves. That's not, these aren't even the source of sin anyway. It's our heart and our head. He was making a point that sin is serious. It needs to be taken seriously. Just like judgment, discipline, discernment, they're serious things. And we need to take them seriously. So how do we do that? I think first we have to realize that telling people the truth, the capital T truth, is only one half of it. As sure as the truth can set you free to the one who's ready to hear it, it can also wound and injure the one who's just not ready, whose heart just isn't in that right place. There is a reason that the writer of Hebrews refers to God's word as a double-edged sword. It's sharp. It pierces, it cuts and divides, it judges the attitudes of the heart. And ultimately, we need it to do that, don't we? Ultimately, it's for our good and the good of humanity, but it doesn't always feel good when it's happening. But there is something we've been given that softens the blow of truth a little bit. It still allows truth to do its work. It's kind of surgical work. But I feel like it removes the residual damage. It lessens the chance of injury. And it actually helps restore me, you, to full health before the Lord. What am I talking about? You got it. Love. Love. Love must always, always, always be the second half of the equation whenever we approach someone with a correction or a rebuke or a judgment, or discipline. Let's remember quickly what Jesus said in John 13, 34 to 35. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you speak correctly, if you do the right thing, if you love one another, This is what Jesus, this is how people know that we are his and he is ours and that we follow him, that we love one another. He said this. Paul echoes this in Ephesians 4. Let's put that up on the screen as well. Paul says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, The whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part 
does its work. We do speak the truth. We must, but always in love, church. Always covered in love. This is correct judgment. To consider how this can look, I just want to offer this simple illustration from Scripture. I like to imagine, you know, the those little signs that are outside some country churches, and we actually have one just down the road here as well. Imagine if that sign only held the words from Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's it. Or maybe just the first half of Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. Are these statements true? You better believe they are. A hundred percent. But they're not super appealing. They're not super attractive. And they're not super helpful, at least on their own. Someone driving by that sign, like if they didn't just dismiss it altogether, might think, okay, great. I I am a sinner. I fall short and I'm going to die. How am I supposed to get on with my life now? But I want you to look at what happens when we follow Romans 3.23 with the next verse, 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Or if we just finish 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a gift I love that. I'm justified freely. I'm redeemed by grace. God has given me the gift of eternal life. Amen. That's good news. That's the truth in love. Do you see it? But I need to offer a word of caution here to church. If truth without love can leave a wound that doesn't heal. Love without truth can lead us to harm as well. Through overindulgence and a culture of total permissiveness, this is harmful too. Paul says again in the book of Romans, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Now, depending largely on your temperament and how you were raised in your faith, I think you probably fall on one side of this equation or the other, just kind of naturally, right? Some of us are truth tellers and some of us are teddy bears. We love, 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 love to love. Come on. It's just how we're wired. And there's a, there's a, a teacher, a theologian, a, a pastor, Tim Keller, tremendous teacher. He offers a helpful illustration. I'm just, we just want to look at really quickly here of these two complementary forces at work. So Keller says, imagine a mountain. There's your mountain. At the top of the mountain is the gospel, perfect truth and perfect love together at the peak. At the bottom of the mountain on either side, there are two errors in judgment that we can make. One is legalism, and the other is antinomianism. Say that three times fast. That's just a big word that means against law. It comes from the Greek anti, against, and nomos, law. So just think against law when you think of antinomianism. Now, if you live at the bottom of these slopes in legalism or antinomianism, 
Keller would say, you're probably not a Christian. Legalism says, I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. Antinomianism says, I'm accepted by God, and therefore I really don't have to obey. You don't understand the gospel if that's what you think on either side of those equations today. But the gospel says, I'm accepted by God, therefore I'd love to obey him. I love it. Because I know when I obey him, he's got my good interests at heart. But the truth is, not, most of us as Christians, obviously, we don't live at the bottom of this mountain. We don't really live at the top either, at least most of us. We live somewhere down one of these slopes, right? Like, we know the gospel in our heads. I'm preaching it to you now. We hear it every single week when Pastor Brent brings it. We know the gospel in our heads. But in our hearts, our behavior gives us away on the side of truth or on the side of love. Sometimes we think, if I work just a little harder, God will love me more. Or maybe we think, I can get away with this little sin because it's not going to change how God feels about me. If we return just to the context of our passage for today, drifting too far down one side or the other, the side of truth or love, it can lead us to some serious, incorrect judgment. I want to look quickly at five common ways this happens. I'm going to move quickly through these to get to my conclusion today. Um, number one, this is one of the errors that we can make. We judge superficially. Jesus tells us in John 7, 24, to stop judging by mere appearances. This type of judgment condemns the action without considering the heart. We have to look deeper. As Jesus looks deeper, Jesus always sees the heart. Number two, we judge hypocritically. This is what Jesus was addressing in Matthew 7, 3 to 5. Let's read it again. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Notice that it doesn't say leave that speck alone. It says get that thing out of your eye first, then go get that speck. Somehow we convince ourselves that God will accept us for a certain behavior that he condemns another for. In fact, oftentimes the things we criticize in others are the things we dislike most about ourselves. The writer Anais Nin, she famously said, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. That's essentially what's going on in hypocrisy. Jesus says, all correct judgment should begin by judging yourself first. Number three, we judge self-righteously. Jesus reserved his harshest criticism for the people in his day who celebrated their own piety and righteousness and policed the righteousness of everyone else. Who were they? The Pharisees. Richard Lovelace, who's a theologian, 
He reminds us of why Pharisaic religion can be so damaging. Let's just quickly look at this quote. He says, Many Pharisaical Christians draw their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce, defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. Whew. That is heavy. You do not want to be that. I do not want to be that. Jesus is even harsher in Matthew 23, 13. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Ouch. Number four, we judge falsely. This one comes straight out of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Exodus 20, 16. What does this mean? Essentially, know the truth. Know the truth before you say anything. Don't come with half-truths and lies and innuendo. Number five, we judge unmercifully. Sometimes those who actually deserve judgment should instead be dealt with mercifully. Does that sound familiar? Are you thankful that's how Jesus deals with you today? Come on. Scripture's pretty vocal on this matter too. Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the merciful Micah 7.18 says, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight, delight to show mercy. He delights in it, church. So should we. James 2.13, Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who is unmerciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Come on. Amen. The Lord delights in showing mercy, and we must as well, church. How then are we to judge correctly, as Jesus commands in John 7, 24? How can we avoid the errors down either side of that mountain, these five errors? And there's more probably, but those are five that just came to mind. It's simple. We must judge as Jesus judged. Jesus is the answer. Surprise. This is church. Jesus is the answer. He always is the answer. Look at what it says in John 1.14. Do we have that? There we go. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I really wish, I do really wish that this verse said love and truth, but I hope we can agree that God's grace is motivated by his great love for us. Grace is undeserved favor motivated by his great love and mercy over us. And the point is that Jesus lives at the top of that mountain. He is full of grace and truth 
in equal measure, and he always, always, always judges correctly in truth and love. Jesus judges the heart. He sees us deeper than we see ourselves. Jesus judges with total integrity. He never said something he didn't mean. He never pretended to be someone that he wasn't, and he never corrected someone of a sinful behavior that he himself was guilty of. Why? Because he had no sin. Jesus judges with righteousness from God because he is the righteousness from God. Jesus judges in absolute truth because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, Jesus judges with mercy because where the God of heaven is involved, ultimately, mercy triumphs over judgment. Yes, amen. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Notice, too, this verse as part of this verse, this is from James 2, it says mercy triumphs over judgment. It doesn't discard it. It doesn't remove judgment. Because if you remove judgment, you create a massive problem in the cosmic order of God's justice. Without judgment, there is chaos, like we said earlier. There is no truth. And without truth, there is no real freedom. There is what looks like freedom. But scripture also says that we are slaves to our sin. We need the truth to set us free. And I don't have time today to unpack all of the theological implications, and there are many. But I will just say this. God is love, and God is truth, and God is just. And in order for justice to be served, in order for God to be just, there must be judgment. There is no, there's no other way. So finally, we come to the cross. The cross of Christ is where the demands of truth were satisfied by a sacrifice of love. It's the place where God's justice and God's mercy were satisfied in the sacrifice of one man who got what he didn't deserve so that all humanity could get what they don't deserve. Isaiah 53.5 says, it's not going to be on the screen, so just listen. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We caused the offense, and he paid the price. Ultimately, in the kingdom of God, church, correct judgment looks like a cross. No human court would have considered this justice. An innocent man put to death for the crimes of other people. There would be massive outcry. But God in his mercy and by his grace passed sentence on us. He did, according to the truth, for the wages of sin is death. That's true. Then he paid that price himself forgiving us and setting us completely free according to his great love. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord.
Here's the thing. God would have been perfectly right, perfectly just to pass judgment and let us burn in condemnation, in separation, in our sin and disobedience. He would have been perfectly right to do that. But this was not correct judgment in the kingdom of God, the upside-down kingdom of God's love and grace. In God's kingdom, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What does this mean for us? What does it mean for you? I think the answer is simple in the stating, but less simple in the doing. We must judge as Jesus judged. We must look to the cross, church. We must. The cross reminds us that in the end, God chose relationships. It didn't matter what we deserved. He wanted to be with us. That's what the cross says. He chose reconciliation. He chose restoration. He chose relationship. Some of you today, I know, are facing truly difficult, impossible situations with some seemingly impossible choices. I think you find yourself possibly at odds with friends or loved ones, even close family members over matters which challenge the truth of God's word, matters of choice, matters of behavior, matters of the heart. I think perhaps you're perfectly right in your position. But I want to ask you today, what does the cross demand? What does it ask of you? Others of you today find that you've permitted or agreed with attitudes or behaviors in yourselves or in other believers, in your family or in your friend groups. These are attitudes and behaviors that clearly don't line up with the truth of Scripture, God's truth. And maybe you have a perfectly peaceful family and social life. But I need to ask you today, what does the cross demand? What does the cross demand of you today? The cross demands a reckoning. And it offers absolution and forgiveness. Both. The cross always speaks the truth and always covers it in perfect love. The cross is the final instrument of God's righteous judgment and it is the triumph of his eternal mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. At the cross, God calls sin, sin, and he does not affirm it, church. He does not. But he also says that he'll never stop paying the price for it and he won't. Why does he do that? Relationship. Relationship. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I need to ask you today as we close, what does the cross demand of you today? What does it demand of me today as we consider the areas in our lives where the Lord is inviting us to speak the truth in love? Will you stand with me? Let's pray together. God, we thank you today that mercy triumphs over judgment. We thank you that we stand forgiven. We stand forgiven in the light of the finished work of the cross. And we do say it is finished with you, Lord. It is finished. 
Justice has been served and mercy has triumphed. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Guide us today in wisdom. Guide us today in gentleness. Guide us today in grace. Guide us today in truth. Guide us today in love. As we consider now, God, the places in our lives where you're inviting us to restore relationship, to be ministers of reconciliation as you are, this is what you're inviting us into, God. Give us the grace and the courage and the wisdom to judge correctly. We don't want to wound. We want to lead with love because mercy triumphs over judgment. But we don't want to shy away from the truth because we need it for our freedom, God. Only you could combine these two things in such a way. Work that out now in us, we pray, God. We recognize that we have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit in us, that we have the mind of Christ, as the Apostle Paul says, that we have the ability because we've been given the ability through the Holy Spirit to speak the truth in love. Guide us and teach us as we do that today. In Jesus' strong name, the church said, amen.